Okay, well, good afternoon, everybody. It's great to be with you, and um, thank you for your kind welcome back. We have been fortunate to be on a break, which has been great. And so we had um, 12 weeks off, which is amazing. Well, I had that off and uh, had some time on my own and went off and did some walking and some thinking and some praying and had some time with our kids, and uh, we had a good time. We had some stories as well, some adventures. That will be, they will be wound in some other sermons somewhere else, so that's for another time. Okay, we're in a series called Home, and I think we've had two weeks, and I'm going to preach today. And if you've got a Bible, I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, please. We're going to read that chapter. We're going to sort of jump down a little bit, and Francesca's going to come and help us and take us through that passage. So, why don't you come? Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment of the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Although I hope to come to see you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. Amen. Amen. We live in a world which encourages us to think a lot about, plan towards, and potentially if you have any spare cash... Spend a lot of money on our homes. Massive businesses and industries are built all around this idea. Ikea is the, a prime example. Anybody like going to Ikea? Yeah, I love a bit of Ikea. Well, I sort of love it. How many of you don't like Ikea? Yeah, okay, it's like Marmite, isn't it? It's one or the other. Well, I kind of have a bit of a love-hate. I, I quite enjoy going, I have to confess. But if I'm there for too long, I find it after a while a little bit overwhelming as an experience because I'm just, I, all these things that I didn't even know existed with strange Scandinavian names. Now I want, in fact, I don't just want them, I need them. And it's amazing how many candles that you suddenly realise you need to buy and have in your house as well. There's a massive industry about trying to improve our homes. Uh, they now have another massive industry called the self-storage industry that sprung up in the first, last 30 years, which is basically for us to put all the things in that we can't fit in our own homes anymore. And if you watch the TV, you will find there are just endless programmes trying to encourage us and sometimes depress us into improving our homes. Programmes like this, Homes Under the Hammer, Home Away From Home, Escape to the Country. There isn't one that says Escape to Catford. I don't know why that's not there. A Place in the Sun, My Dream Home, DIY SOS. You deserve this home. Bob the Builder, definitely about home improvement. Fancy Homes Down Under, The Home That Two Built, My Dream Derelict Home. But my personal favourite is Grand Designs. Oh yes, bit of Grand Designs. Okay, now I know I might be being a little bit unfair here, but Grand Design seems to me to follow pretty much the same story every time. 
And apologies if you fit into this category. Uh, but anyway, so seemingly what they do is they find a posh couple from West, from West London called Rupert and Jemima, right? And Rupert and Jemima, Rupert works in the stock, stock exchange. Anyway, they've, they've got this lovely flat in Kensington which they're selling for several million pounds and they're moving to the country. Do you see this program? I've seen this loads of times. And they buy this old wreck of a house, it's massive, and they have this huge budget, but they manage to spend double the budget they actually have. So it's all about that, we spent too much money. And it's mainly because they've become absolutely obsessed with bespoke windows. <laughs> I don't even know what bespoke windows are, but they, they're obsessed by them. And Jemima tends to stay at home and she project manages the whole thing. And she drives the builders mad because she's a total control freak micromanager. But all because they are desperate to build their own dream home. This, now, you may not have as much money as Rupert and Jemima, I suspect none of us do. But this theme of home is quite emotive and quite strong for all of us. Most of us want to have somewhere that we call and consider home. Now, I know that for some of us in the room, our own experience of home, maybe growing up, maybe even right now, has not always been positive. Sometimes it's been very difficult. So it's not always an easy picture, actually. But I suspect many of us, if not all of us, carry in us a desire to be at home somewhere. You know, if you've had a tough day out, it's been a long, hard day, you will often find yourself saying, I just want to get home. Because home at its best actually at its best, and I appreciate it's not always at its best for all of us, is a place where we feel safe, where we feel known, where we feel accepted, where we feel at ease. That's what home should be. And this theme of home runs all through the Bible, not always explicitly, but definitely implicitly, it's there. So we read in Genesis, Adam and Eve were created to live at home, really, with God. You get this picture of Adam walking with God in the garden. There's a sense of ease that Adam is talking with, walking with. He is comfortable with, accepted, fully known, fully loved. He is at home. And yet home is lost. Rebellion, sin breaks that. There's an exile, and home is lost. And really, you could tell the rest of the human story through the lens, if you like, of humankind trying to get home again trying to get back. Now, not everybody would say they're getting, they want to get back to God. Some people would, and they'd try all sorts of ways of trying to get back. But definitely the experience of wanting to get back to a place of feeling fulfilled, of feeling satisfied, of feeling like our hearts are connected the way they ought to be somehow. Most of our human history is about trying to get home, but we can't get home on our own. And obviously the story that Jesus comes, and we'll celebrate that at Christmas, just, just so you know, it's 100 days till Christmas just to encourage you. For those of you who are like, oh, I've got to do all the shopping. 100 days. And at Christmas, we celebrate and tell the story of Jesus coming to live amongst us. Emmanuel makes his dwelling amongst us. He comes to make his home amongst us so that he will one day be exiled, die and be exiled. Andrew talked about that last week. Died outside the city. Again, a picture of being exiled because we had been exiled so that we can, if we believe in him and accept him as Savior Lord, we can come home. That's the theme, that's the story, really. And we're told that one day we will meet God face to face and be fully at home if we know Jesus. And that right now, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, we are called to be part of God's household, if you like, his home on earth here, together. 
And we'd be mindful about how we build and do this home together. Together as we meet with him, experience him, as we grow together and as we represent him to the world around us. So it's a very powerful theme. But what's interesting in 1 Timothy 3 is that Paul kind of spins the picture around and goes, I don't want to talk about God's household out here. I want to talk about your households, your homes within the context of God's household. Because something about the way we build our own households and homes affects and is part of how we build this together. So he's spinning it around and saying to Timothy, I want you to be mindful. Now, obviously, if you've, you know, as we just read, you'll see that this passage he's writing is primarily about who do you pick to be elders or overseers in churches? That's the direct application of this passage. It's about, you know, who are appropriate people? And it's interesting that he links God's household to the idea of elders and overseers being people who manage and build their own homes well. That's one of, not the only test, but one of the tests is, do they build and run their own households well? Because how are they going to care for God's household if they can't do that? It's interesting that they do not draw, the Bible doesn't draw any distinction between private life and public life, unlike actually politically what's going on in our culture, where you hear a lot of people saying, it doesn't matter what they like at home as long as they're effective publicly. That's not what the Bible says about leadership. The two are absolutely connected. But although this passage is written, if you like, specifically around the issue of eldership and oversight, this passage is relevant, I want to say, to all of us, because pretty much every quality you see listed in 1 Timothy 3, other than maybe you know, able to teach, everything else you'll see here is absolutely applicable to every kind of believer, every season of life. You'll find that these things are repeated throughout the New Testament, some of the qualities that Paul is raising as of first importance with Timothy about his household, his life, our own spheres. He's saying this is of first importance and it's about leadership, but actually this is applicable to everybody. Now I want to say this is applicable to you whether you are married or not, whether you have children or not. Whatever season of life you're at, what you'll find is this passage is applicable and can be contextualised into your context. You'll need to do that for yourself today. But actually what he's saying is relevant to all of us. And Paul lists a bunch of areas here the basic is saying, this is of first importance. How you live your life, how you manage your sphere, how you interrelate with your household, whatever that household looks like, is of first importance. And we're going to just read through the list that Paul says. He says this, and it's going to come up on the screen. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. He's saying these things for you and me are of first importance. So often we think it's what I'm going to do in my life, my career, all these things, that's all good. But he's saying no, these things are really, really important. And so now, obviously, there's about a year's worth of teaching there. So let's go. No, so we can only pick out a few things. So I'm going to pick out one or two. There's so much more. And I know there's a lot of people in this room who could probably teach even better on these things than I am. But just a few things that I've noticed that have struck me that I think God might want to speak to us about. Okay? So here's the first one I want to say. And I think this undergirds pretty much everything else. Paul says one of the key issues in our lives, in how we manage and build our own households, whatever that looks like in your sphere, is about the issue of being self-controlled. We don't talk very much about that. 
He says, I want you to be, they need to be temperate. That means basically self-disciplined, sober, and self-controlled. Because my ability to control myself, to actually follow through and make good choices about the things that I think are actually important is critical when it comes to all sorts of these issues. My ability to lead myself is at the heart of pretty much everything else. How I handle money, the alcohol, other substances, the kind of decisions I make, how I treat my friends, my wife, my kids, how I handle myself if I'm angry. And anger isn't a wrong emotion. Sometimes it's an appropriate emotion. It's how we express it. And if you want to check out how someone does that, just watch them when they drive home today. Cut them up just on the south circuit and see what kind of response you get. You'll find out whether they've got an issue of anger or not pretty quickly when people get behind the wheel. It's kind of funny, but it's kind of not funny. Whether I'm quarrelsome or even tend towards violence or I'm violent, all of this relates in some way to the issue of can I lead myself, can I control myself? Now, there's so much you could talk about this issue, but this one thing, self-control seems to me it's not the kind of thing you can make yourself by trying really hard. (laughs) You know, that's often how we operate. I'm going to make myself better at this. How many of us find that it's a really fruitful way of changing ourselves? But it's, we often slip into that. Now, I'm not saying willpower doesn't have its place. It does have its place. It's part of the package of change. But on its own, it's just not able or powerful enough. And we're going to talk a bit more about that at the end. Self-control, Galatians 5 says, is a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, in some ways, self-control is linked to God doing something in our hearts internally that brings external change in our lives. And we're going to come back to that. But it seems to me the issue of self-control is absolutely linked to how you manage your household or your life, just generally, everything. Okay, second thing is this, money. Jesus teaches a lot about money, a lot. I don't know, it's the second most popular, I think it's the second most kind of highest thing he talks about, I think, somewhere up there. Now, the reason I think he talks a lot about money is not because he was after people's money, but was because he was after people's hearts and he knows and he knew that money was the competitor for people's affections and their hearts like nothing else. In other words, money is not neutral. Money, well, money is neutral, but money has this tendency to want to get a hold of you. It wants to be first. In other words, money really wants to be God in your life. He wants you to bow down to it. So, and you can tell if you have an issue with money. If you think a lot about money, if you own, if you think about all the money you own, it's not about actually how much you have necessarily, actually at all. If you talk about money a lot, if you think constantly about how much you're going to get more, if you're, if you're thinking constantly about how satisfied you'll be when you get there, if you're not generous with what you already have, in other words, if it dominates you, there's a chance you may have an issue with money. And Jesus says this, you cannot serve two masters, says this in Matthew 6. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So money's not wrong, but it definitely has this draw where it wants to be first. Money is a terrible God to serve. Can't just say that. It's so common in the world we live in for it to be first, but it is a horrible God to serve because money doesn't care about you and money won't give you what it's advertising. So it will promise you, if you get more of me, you're going to have all these things. But what you find is you never quite get all the things you want. Have you noticed that? That if you ever get a pay rise, it's never quite a pay rise enough. <laughs> it's just like there's a little clue there somewhere. 
It's a horrible God to serve. And it will cause you, if you allow it, to drive your life to sacrifice all these other things. Sometimes you'll sacrifice people who really matter to you for the sake of having more. Parents sometimes will ignore their kids for years just so they can have more. It's like sacrificing your children on the altar of money. Now, if money is an issue in your heart, and you will not be alone if you are, okay, here's a great way to dethrone that idol because actually it's about taking that thing down and putting it in its right place. And the Bible has a lot about dethroning idols. If money is an issue, here's a great way to dethrone it. Start to give your money away. I'm not saying in a crazy way where you don't have any money left. I'm talking about biblically, thoughtfully, appropriately, you begin to give. Now, this is actually a principle about spiritual change and spiritual growth anyway. If you want to change in an area of your life, let's say you feel God speaks to you about an issue in your life today, out of this passage. One of the ways, one of the issues is not about just saying no to something. I'm going to say no to being selfish about money or about hoarding money. What you have to do is replace what you're saying no with with a yes to something else. It can't just be no here. You have to start saying yes. I'm going to say no by saying yes. I'm going to I'm beginning to give. I'm going to give to the church. I'm going to be generous with my money with my friends. I'm just going to start to give it away. Because every time you give money away, appropriately, thoughtfully, biblically, what you're saying is, money, I don't trust you. I'm not going to put my trust in you. God, I do trust you that what you say to me is true, that I can give this away and you will meet my needs. Matthew 6, you say, if I seek you first and I don't run after all these things, I've put you first, then you will give me, you know what I need, you'll give me all the things I need. You'll look after me if I line my life up properly and you're saying, God, I trust you. Every time you give, you're saying, God, I trust you and I don't trust you. And that's how you dethrone it. And guess what? You have to keep dethroning it because it keeps wanting to take first place. Money, how you handle money, very important. Third thing, just a comment on relationships and marriage. Now, I know not everybody in this room is married, but this passage actually is applicable to all of us, whatever stage and season we're in. Paul writes to Timothy and says, well, they should be faithful in marriage, or in another translation, the husband of one wife. Now, there's so much you could say here, but this is about the issue of faithfulness and committedness, being committed, but it's also about the issue of sexual purity, I would say. Right? So this is about what we watch. It's about what we think about, who we think about. It's about how we conduct ourselves with others. Paul writes to Timothy in the next or two chapters on, he says, think about older women in the church like mothers, treat them like mothers, and think about younger women as sisters. So I would always, you know, don't tell someone that you think's older than you guys, oh, you must be a mother, because you might find you've misjudged how old they are, and then you've got another problem on your hands, okay? So don't go around labelling people, mother, because they may not like you very much for that. But in terms of how you think, now we live in a world that's saying that you can think about women or men in a completely different set of ways. But actually what that's leaving people is into incomplete enslavement. What you look on the internet, what you watched on TV, it is a massive issue and it is not okay. It's enslaving people. It's probably quite possibly enslaving a bunch of us in this room. And Paul's saying, no, no, I want you to get out. You can get out. You can get out. It's not easy, but you can get out. How we handle relationships is really important. Now, if you are married, one thing I'd want to say to you, Sarah and I have been married for 22 years. I'm very fortunate to be married to her. She's great. 
One of the things we've learned, there's so many things to learn, and we've learned from lots of great people who are further ahead than us, but one of the things we've learned is a really good barometer of how we're doing and a really good stimulus to doing much better is how much we're talking. Simply that. And I don't mean like the kind of conversations you have where it's like, please unpack the dishwasher kind of conversations. That, <laughs> we don't have to monitor that. That happens all the time. <laughs> all the time. I mean the kind of like, how are we doing? How are our kids doing? How's our situation? Yeah, how, those kind of more meaningful conversations. And it's amazing how you can go for years, weeks, months, sometimes years without even having those. You just slip into not really having them. But we found that when we have them, even when there are other issues and challenges, that makes a massive difference to all of these. It's not the only thing, but if, I, if you're married here or if you're in a serious relationship, I would say to you, do that. If you're not sure where to start, do that, because you will find that leads you to a whole bunch of other potentially good things. So much we could say, but communication is critical. Last thing I want to say, and this is about the issue of children. I know not everybody here has kids, but many of us will be grandparents or aunties or uncles or part of an extended family. Uh, Sarah and I are privileged to have four children. Being a, trying to be a good dad is one of the most important things to me. And I don't know any parent, or in fact anybody in the extended family, who doesn't want to be a great influence or doesn't want to be a great mum and dad. One of the things I've learned, I know Steve has spoken about this, and we've learned from Steve and Deb, children basically need, they need a lot of things, but fundamentally they need two main things. And our job is to get both of these right. First of all, they need to know they are loved. They need a relationship with their dad or their mum. Whichever one of us is there. If there's two of us, great. If it's one of us, we're with you. And often, love and relationship is spelt time. So we went out yesterday with our kids. I didn't do this because I was preaching today. We went out for a walk, and I did not take this thing. Do you know why I didn't take this? Because I forgot. To, no, no, it's not because I forgot to take it. Okay? I wanted to take it because I wanted to check what was going on in the, in the cricket. But I was thinking, do you know, if I take this with me, there's this little thing that's going to be going, yeah, no, I am interested in, I am interested in what you're saying. I'm not communicating I'm interested at all. You know how this works. Dethrone the idols. So kids need time. I mean, it doesn't mean everything is going to work out perfectly the way we always want it to. It just means that is fundamental. They need to know they're loved. That's part of it. The other side of the balance is that they need boundaries. Okay? And, you know, culturally, this is a little different for different ones of us, but basically kids need to know what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. What's okay, what's not okay. How we do things around here. No, that's not okay. That's, yeah, that's great. That's great. Comment on when kids get it right, by the way, not just when they get it wrong. And if you're a parent, your job is to kind of try and balance both of those things out and try and keep assessing. Are we, getting, are we giving them enough time and are we being clear on our boundaries? Are we balancing that? And as they get older, it's how do we apply that into their different age group and being kind of like switched on to the fact that you might have to change a little bit in your style as a parent. The kids need that. And Paul is saying to Timothy, this is really critical in the church, how we raise children. Really, really important. So boundaries and relationships and time. I'd like to type more, but I just don't have enough time. Okay, lastly, this last little bit, I want to talk about how we change. Okay, because here's the thing, right? In church, I've sat through thousands of sermons. And it's very easy to hear a sermon or to read the Bible and go, oh, that's nice. And nothing changes. But if God's, if God's spoken to you, you kind of go, that's an area of my life that something needs to change in. I have a real problem with that substance. 
I'm just drinking way too much when I get home from work. Or our marriage is really on the edge. We don't tend to drift into good change. Okay, no one gets fitter by hoping they're going to get fitter. Have you noticed that? I really want to be an athlete. You just don't become an athlete by not just hoping. Because when you come to it, you never want to go for a run, ever. I, I run quite a lot. I never want to go, ever. We don't drift into good change. We have to do some things. So if God is speaking to you, you have to do something. First thing about change is, if I was to say to you, well, let's say God speaks to you about your anger and you realise, oh, I've got a bit of a problem. I do get really angry. If it comes out of my wife or whatever it is, if I was to say, well, just go home, try harder, I don't think that's going to help you. Because willpower alone, although it's part of the package of change, is not powerful enough to change you fundamentally. They reckon the studies have shown that willpower basically gets tired. It's like a muscle. So if you keep using it, in the end, you kind of go, I'm just exhausted. I can't do this anymore. Because on its own, it can't do it. Or if I was to say to you, okay, God's spoken to you about, let's say, your parent and your kids, and you're a bit concerned about this area, and you think, okay, there's some things to learn. And I'll say, well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you some how-tos, some tips. Well, here's a good book, or here's a seminar about how to do this better. Is that important? Yes, that can be very helpful. Absolutely, it definitely has its place. But I would suggest even willpower together with a bunch of how-to skills sometimes is not sufficient to really change us because so much of what 1 Timothy 3 is saying, Paul is saying to Timothy, this is really important about how so much of the way we do things is a product of who we actually are. Sometimes it's not a question that I don't know what to do. Sometimes I do know what to do. I just can't get myself to do it. Because it's a product of something internal which is coming out externally. Sometimes the way I'm handling this substance or this, or this issue or my money or my kids is a product of an issue with my own heart. Not something in my brain where I don't know what to do. And if you subscribe to that, what that means is this. Not only do we need willpower and we need skills. Yes, what we need sometimes is a change of heart. Something internal needs to come out externally, in other words. And the way to a changed heart is to line up with Jesus and say, God, I need your help. That's where change starts. Now, I'm not saying people who aren't Christians can't ever change, but I'm saying biblically, we change inside out primarily rather than outside in. You can't tell someone to be different and make them different. On the whole, it has to come inside out. And change starts by coming home. If I want my household, my home to be different, my life to be different, I have to come home. Does that make sense? That's where change starts. It's by saying to Jesus, I admit I am not doing very well in this area. I admit I have an issue with anger. I admit I have whatever it is. And then you come home and you confess it to him and probably to someone else. And you come home and you go, I need you to do something inside me so that I can do something out in my life that's different to how it has been. That's how change happens. Now, if you're not a Christian, you need to come home to Jesus for the first time if you've never given your life to him. The Bible says you clearly you've got to come home. You've got to line up. You've got to get something changed inside of you. But you could be a Christian here and you still need to keep coming home. Okay, you might have wandered off and there might be an area of your life you go, well, I am absolutely enslaved in that area. Do you know what you need to do? You need to come home. You need to admit it. You need to confess it. You need to repent. You need to talk to some people about it. Because sometimes it's a process, not just a one-off moment, often. 
And even if you think, well, I don't know if I do have a massive error issue. Do you know what? We still have to keep coming home. Because every day, and maybe this is just me confessing, this is group therapy for me, my heart wanders off. And I have to keep coming back. That's where change really starts. It's by coming home. Now, you might think, well, that's a bit simplistic. But let me just take you to a few verses. I'm going to jump to John 15. John 15, Jesus says this, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. In other words, there's something about being connected to Jesus that allows us to be fruitful in our lives. And if we disconnect from him, we are less fruitful. Romans 12, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test what is God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. In other words, there's something about change that is connected to knowing truth in our hearts, which changes the way we think and feel about stuff, and we start to live a little differently. Last comment as we close. If Jesus is speaking to you, you've got to do something. Don't go through today and go, well, yeah, I'll do something next week. Because it's really easy to hear words and do nothing about them. Jesus says in Matthew 7, after teaching a whole load of extraordinary stuff, he says, I'm going to tell you a story about people who do stuff and people who don't do stuff. People who take action and people who don't take action. And he tells this story that we probably all know. It's about two builders. He goes, one builder turns up and he finds the rock and he builds a house on the rock. Another builder turns up, he builds it on sand, he just builds his house, they all look the same. Storms, we are told, come to both houses. In other words, lives are difficult. They're a picture of our lives. But the storms come. And Jesus says, you know, the house on the rock is the one that stands and prevails. But that guy who builds his house on the sand, that, that house doesn't stand. It doesn't prevail. It doesn't do well in the storm. And this is what he says, and this is what we're going to close with. He says this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Friends, we, we don't want to be that person. But Jesus says, if you hear my voice and you don't actually do anything about what I'm saying to you, that's what it's like. It's pretty sobering. But then he says this, but everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. I want to encourage you, if God's speaking to you today, do something about it. Let's stand, we're going to pray. Hillary's going to come and help us.